0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Random Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. David Brown about his book titled Empire and Enterprise, Money, Power, and the Adventures for Irish Land During the British Civil Wars, published by Manchester University Press in 2022. The book examines the transformation of England's trade and government finances um, during the key period of the English Civil Wars uh, that had pretty significant consequences for Ireland. Uh, so there's a really interesting book that focuses in massive amounts of fascinating detail of a seemingly narrow time period, but actually shows through that story uh, the repercussions that are much larger than the particular group of adventures for Irish land that the book um, follows. So... Welcome, Dr. David Brown, to the podcast.
2: Oh, thank you very much.
1: Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book?
2: Sure. Well, I'm a senior research fellow in Trinity College Dublin, and I'm currently the archival discovery lead for the Virtual Treasury of Ireland. This project aims to digitally replace the record treasury of the Public Record Office of Ireland that was destroyed at the outbreak of the Irish Civil War in 1922. So there's basically a big digital humanities project. We've just launched it uh, two weeks ago, um, virtualrecordtreasury.ie. Uh, we've basically gone around the world digitizing very, very large amounts of manuscript and early printed texts, and we put them all online. They're all searchable. There's plenty of things for people to look at. I've been involved in these sort of hybrid history technical projects for some time. So about 10 years ago, I worked on a historical geographical information system project in Trinity that was called the Down Survey of Ireland, which is also still online. The Down Survey was a set of around 1,200 large scale maps that were never published and long thought lost. and These recorded the topography of Ireland in unprecedented detail for its time. They were made by Sir William Petty in the 1650s for the then military Cromwellian government in Ireland to record all Catholic or royalist own land in Ireland that was to be seized and then distributed to Cromwell soldiers and to a group of investors from the, dating back to the 1640s at the outbreak of the war who were known as the adventurers. The adventures were the product of one of the last pieces of legislation signed by Charles I in 1642 after he had been expelled from London and a few months before the conflict between the King and Parliament became a hot war. So the background to this is that a widespread rebellion had erupted in Ireland in October 1641, and Charles, who was fresh from a campaign to bring Scotland back into the fold, was unable to raise an army to send to Ireland to crush the Irish Rebellion. So instead, some unnamed merchants in London, or named at the time, offered to finance and send a private army. And This is in line with private enterprise during the Thirty Years' War that was fairly common throughout Europe. The money was to be repaid with land seized from the rebellious Irish. So putting down the rebellion would, in theory, not cost Charles anything. A risky investment was called an adventure, and the Act of Parliament that authorised the private army for Ireland was called the Adventurers' Act. The people who invested in the scheme therefore became known as the adventurers. So I hope that's a reasonably straightforward way of defining them. After the British Civil Wars had come to an end 20 years later, the rationale of distributing land to unpaid soldiers or various hangers-on of the protectorate seemed clear enough. It basically stopped them making trouble and it made a problem go away. But the adventurers' case was less clear. In the 1660s, the new model army was paid off with Irish land, but a bunch of investors... Why bother? The vast majority of these investors had supported Parliament in its revolt against Charles I, and the execution indeed of Charles I. And they'd supported the Commonwealth and the protectorate that prevented Charles II accessing his throne. One might have thought that the perennially short of cash Charles II would have simply told him to get lost, but he didn't. And that was the puzzle or the paradox. Nobody had really identified who they really were, how they came to have such influence and how they came to get all this land. So that that was basically the the puzzle. It was, why did, how did this happen?
1: That's a good puzzle. And quite often good puzzles are the best starts for books. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, So let's start to then untangle a bit of this puzzle. Uh, First off, the adventurers, as uh, they literally were called, and that's not a made up name, which is actually quite a fun bit of history. Um, who were they, socioeconomically, geographically, religiously? Who, who was this group?
2: So, on the original list of adventurers, this is going back to the sixteen forty two list of who put in the money. There were more than a thousand from all over England, but there was a core. So, there was a hierarchy to this, and there was maybe thirty or so who put up most of the two hundred and fifty thousand pounds that was originally raised. They aimed to raise a million; they raised two hundred and fifty thousand. This is a this is big money for the sixteen forties. And they were basically all London Puritans from Coleman Street and the surrounding parishes. So as Londoners, they were identified by their guild affiliations, grocers, leather sellers, and and, and the the like, the various different trades. And maybe some of them, in fact, sold some leather from time to time, but that was not really what they were about. Almost all were involved in overseas trade, and everything from the big chartered companies, such as the Levant and East India companies, or in the rapidly expanding Atlantic arena. And as Puritans, and as you might expect, many had family or commercial ties with the New England colonies. Many more had a couple of decades of experience in Virginia or the Caribbean. And there were some African merchants thrown into the mix as well. So they basically covered most of England's overseas commercial enterprises. In the late 1630s, they became increasingly active politically. And men draw from their cohort began to appear on London's Common Council, and that the council managed the day to day running of the city. The Court of Aldermen that oversaw London's liveried monopolies, like the grocers and leather sellers, and the recall of Parliament in 1640 saw the election of Puritan MPs again drawn from this group for the first time. So they're not really grocers, it's just that this was the only way to describe them within London's strict hierarchies. A London grocer who owns 5,000 acres in Devon, for example, and a private navy maybe, is quickly redefined as a Devonshire gentleman. A grocer who owned 5,000 acres in Virginia, or a leather seller with an iron mine in New England, and these people are real. These were still in London's hierarchies, well-to-do shopkeepers. so Their wealth was masked by their geographical distance and by the weakness of government on the periphery. Basically, nobody really knew what was going on. The leading adventurers had large pools of offshore capital in 1642 that nobody really knew about.
1: And what did bring them together, aside from, in some senses, kind of uh, where they were and sort of their level of income? What did they want when they came together?
2: What do they want is, is still quite a subjective question. I'll lay out the historical background for it. And what happened. Now what the what they're after to begin with, or before this, because these are merchant records, there's, there's, there's very little of it. They weren't in the habit of writing down their thoughts and feelings. They're basically they were in the habit of writing down ledgers and instructions to buy and sell goods. So their actual motives are difficult to define at this stage, but all we can really do is judge them by what actually happened. So what actually happened more or less was this is quite a well known story in early modern English history. On the 5th of January 1642, Charles I forced his way into the House of Commons with an armed escort and attempted to arrest five MPs and a peer for making treasonable charges against the Queen, Henrietta Maria. The raid did not come as a complete surprise and Charles's targets had time to flee onto riverboats on the River Thames before melting into the London crowds. So, fearful of arrest, the remaining MPs put Parliament into recess, and Westminster appeared to close down completely for a few days. Parliament's primary concern during that week had been the uprising in Ireland that had begun in October 1641, and by January 1642 had escalated into a widespread revolt that had engulfed the entire country. London's popular press was full of lurid illustrative stories of the atrocities wrought by Catholic Irish rebels against their English neighbours, who had settled in Ireland in large numbers during the early decades of the 17th century. As Charles was in Scotland when the rebellion broke out in Ireland, he gave Parliament special powers to direct England's response to the revolt in Ireland. So he basically gave his authority to Parliament to act on his behalf, The progress was slow anyway, and the King returned to London in the winter of 1641 to take personal control of the English military response. Parliament had organised a special committee, the Committee for Irish Affairs, for this response. And it was to deal with the day to day matters in its response to the emergency in Ireland. These responsibilities included raising money for the relief of thousands of, of Protestant refugees who had fled Ireland and were now crowded into London and other English ports. The committee was also responsible for recruiting soldiers to serve in Ireland and for purchasing food and munitions to reinforce the loyal forces or forces there were still loyal to either the King or Parliament that remained in Ireland. Using the sort of constitutional gymnastics of which modern MPs would be proud, the Committee for Irish Affairs decided it had a mandate to continue sitting and making decisions, even if Parliament was in recess following Charles' incursion. The committee members decamped to grocers' hall, a guild hall, or a livery hall, in the middle of London, and continued parliamentary business. Although Parliament had, been, had basically been put into recess, the most prominent members of this committee of Irish affairs were a young Oliver Cromwell and the parliamentary firebrand who had just slipped the king's grasp, John Pym. So on the 6th of January 1642, this is the next day after Charles' incursion, the Committee for Irish Affairs concluded that it could not fulfil its mandate to suppress the rebellion in Ireland if Westminster was not secure. So they raised the London militia basically to secure Parliament on the behalf of the Committee for Irish Affairs. They were able to mount an armed standoff with Charles on this basis and, and basically force them out of London because they had to continue to meet the demands of Ireland through this committee, and they couldn't meet its demand unless Parliament basically could, could, could sit again. Now, this was the excuse. So on the 10th of January 1642, Charles left London. And on the 12th of January, the city of London was asked for a loan of £100,000 to send an army to Ireland. So to all appearances, all the Committee for Irish Affairs was trying to do was to fulfil its mandate in trying circumstances, What was in fact happening was that Pym and Cromwell, not content with recruiting the London militia to their political project, had used the rebellion in Ireland as cover to assemble and train a large army on the outskirts of the capital. Charles began to draw his allies together, and the size of the force Parliament would require to defeat him continued to grow. So in April, the adventure for Irish land was announced, and in July, the money the adventure had raised was transferred to Parliament's military committee, and in October, the army it had trained to send to Ireland was simply sent to Edge Hill to fight the king's forces in the first pitched battle of the English Civil War. <clears throat> Excuse me. So while all this was going on, the rebellion in Ireland continued unchecked. The adventurers' leadership did not seem to care particularly, and it's possible that the entire adventure was a complex bluff, a way of assembling a parliamentary army in full sight while pretending it had a different purpose that the king had already signed off upon. Later, when the rebellion had essentially been successful, and an Irish government, the Catholic Confederacy, was established in Kilkenny that was loyal to the Stuarts, the conquest of Ireland had a different impetus. The challenge morphed from sending an army from England to crush the Irish in the name of the king, to preventing an army from being sent from Ireland to crush the English in the name of the king. So that's basically the historical background to the adventure itself and what happened to it. The motive at the beginning probably changed. Maybe there was a genuine feel that they had to help basically Protestant Ireland defeat Catholic Ireland. But it's absolutely not what happened, and it's absolutely not what happened from a very, very early stage in the process.
1: How significant were motivations for Irish land ownership in
2: this process? There seemed to be a freebie that that they managed to concoct. Uh, Because Charles signed off on it, it was actually very damaging because... It moved the rebellion from being something that an end could probably have been negotiated to. The Irish rebels at the time were saying that they were defending the king against Puritans and that their actions were targeted against Puritan landowners in Ireland and Puritan mortgage holders of land in Ireland and that they were actually loyal to Charles and Charles didn't realize the amount of danger that he was in. and Charles could have, in fact, very successfully negotiated peace treaties twice in 1645 and in 1648. But the adventure for Irish land forced Irish landowners into a fight to the end, because once they'd surrendered to Parliament, they would lose all their land. Now, whether this was the intention of the adventure, and it's something that Charles actually noted before he signed it, that I don't like this, this is basically pushing us towards a total war that we simply have, somebody has to win. But they went ahead with it anyway, so it looks like this complete defeat was always an original aim. The fact that they, because it took so many years, obviously the English Civil Wars intervened in the project. But I'm still not convinced that they were actually that interested. It was simply a way that they could raise an army. And the fact that this land was thrown in as well was basically just good news.
1: <laughs> How significant um, was it that so many of these adventurers had... Um, spent time sort of not quite together but in sort of interweaving networks and relationships um, in the colonies in Virginia.
2: Well it made them rich (laughs) and for many planters if not necessarily their servants it was a bit like leaving home for the first time and going to work abroad. People had had to rub along so social hierarchies were broken down. A knight of the realm and a grocer's son would dine together or go on patrols together. And also, men from modest backgrounds found themselves promoted to positions of authority that they might find would take a lot longer in sort of smaller, sorry, larger polities like London. Maybe it's this kind of thing you'd achieve if you came from a small town. But these were people who'd come from modest backgrounds, they were in Virginia, the colony was growing quite rapidly, and they wouldn't have been there for a while, got promoted quite rapidly. Uh, The core adventurers made a lot of money by taking other people's land, and this is what they repeated with the adventure, and having it cleared using unfree labour. Once the land was cleared, it became profitable through the cultivation of tobacco, and there were further profits to be made in monopolising the export of colonial produce. So they did learn how to take over other people's land and how to make money out of it. The second useful skill they learned was in the formation and command of a militia. The colonial militias were very different from the brutalised former soldiers who had served in Europe during the Thirty Years' War and came back to England. Although they were outnumbered by the people natives to the Americas, they had vastly superior weapons and defensive technologies. The militias were trained to be mobile and not for pitched battles. So when some veterans from the Americas returned to London, approaching the outbreak of the civil wars, they naturally turned to the London militias for camaraderie and also for income. So in 1642, there were two types of colonial veterans roaming around London. There were the returned planters turned tobacco merchants who had learned to be independent and were less ready to accept London's stifling social and political structures. And the enthusiastic militia veterans, and some of these remember the near destruction of Jamestown in 1621 and drew comparisons between what had happened there and what was happening in Ireland. The key part, though, is how many of these people were related to one another. Uh, An example here is Morris Thompson, who became one of the leaders of the adventurers, and he was a key money man. And he was the brother-in-law of another man called William Tucker, who was a key militia man. Uh, Tucker's claim to fame, and he's quite well known in the early history of Virginia, was at the, during the Powhatan rebellions in 1621, Tucker organized a peace meeting with the Powhatans, and he poisoned their food and basically killed them all. So he was that kind of person. He joined the London Militia, became a commander, he joined the Parliamentary Army, and he was eventually killed in a cannon duel with 10 Royalist cannoneers who blew his head off at some point. I just left that as a little vignette because Tucker is an, an interesting character. Thompson guaranteed the price of... Thompson was probably a genius. He guaranteed the price of the Virginia tobacco crop and, became, and more or less monopolised his import from Virginia and built up a very, very large business empire while he did it, while Tucker was commanding the militia. They proved together it was possible to rule over a planter society as long as the leading planters were happy with the arrangements. So Parliament could keep London on side as long as the population were generally happy, and the militia kept the peace with the consent of a majority of, of the people of London. So they learned how to basically manage communities and societies and people and they learned to rely on each other um, they kind of lost the respect or the deference that you would have growing up in london through their time spent in the colonies
1: mm. and so then how you, you've talked about kind of the outcome of what they would they managed to do um, how much influence they managed to have um, but how exactly did they kind of coming back from virginia back into London, how did they leverage these skills and experiences in order to become um, such a key influence on Parliament?
2: They became the agents of the Lords and Commons, who were central to opposition to the King. So as they'd exhibited no other political ambitions of their own, and had worked with many of the politicians before, they were basically trusted by peers and by leading MPs to get on with the job and not to challenge their political masters. So one of the key figures in 1642, this obscure Cambridgeshire MP called Oliver Cromwell, whose own political ambitions seemed at the time fairly modest. He was basically like them one of their group, a Puritan. Cromwell had actually intended to emigrate to a plantation scheme run by the Earl of Warwick in the 1630s. Warwick, in turn, was one of the nobles who led the opposition to the king among senior peers. And Thompson and Tucker had also worked for Warwick at one time or another. And sometimes in very senior roles for Warwick, uh, Thompson managed his Providence Island. Uh, it was a pri- uh, p- pirate's nest that he tried to set up. It was just off the coast of the Caribbean side of Colombia. And the idea there was that they would basically seize Spanish silver ships that were passing by. The Spanish got wind of it and knocked the colony over a couple of years later. But he was basically one of Warwick's contractors. And Warwick hired him initially in 1641 to bring arms to Protestants defending themselves during the Irish Revolt for example. He was basically somebody who Warwick turned to and because Pym was one of Warwick's men he was also somebody who Pym turned to. And a lot of the adventurers are in this position of having MPs, having worked for them before, having had this experience with the colonies with many of them other their families. So they were people who were relied upon by MPs to basically get the work done in the background. So of all the MPs, for example, it's Cromwell who we find in the Committee for Irish Affairs in 1642, uh, despite him having no connection with Ireland apart from a distant cousin, Lord Cromwell, within the state and county down. So why is Cromwell there if not because he's simply part of this group? He's he's no business being on the Committee for Irish Affairs. He doesn't own any land in Ireland. He's no business in Ireland. He'd never expressed any interest in Ireland. So he must be there... As a placeman for Warwick or as a placeman for the merchants, because there's no other reason for him to be involved with this group. So it stayed as a pretty tight circle of these people around Warwick Cromwell Pym on the political end and around Thompson on the other end. The opposition nobles and MPs wanted people that they could trust looking after the finances of their rebellious Commonwealth. Uh, Puritan fellow travellers with whom little done business were an obvious choice. So the adventurers, and this is the, this is the original cohort who raised the original tranche of cash in 1642 of Ireland, for Ireland and then raised no objection when Parliament diverted the money, were offered one branch of state finance after another to manage. In return, as royalist merchants were, reject, were rejected one by one from London or taxed into submission... The same adventurers took over England's principal trading companies until they controlled the commanding heights of England's war economy. This may have been a good moment for Cromwell and his friends to go, well, hang on a minute, you can't just do that. But Parliament was in too deep at that stage, completely completely absorbed in civil war and dependent on the money men to keep the materials of war coming in and the soldiers paid. So they became mutually dependent over a period of three years, at which time the adventurers controlled the various tax-raising bodies of the state and most of its trade, and the MPs more or less had to go along with it because they needed the adventurers to continue to fund the revolt against the king.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... (coughs) A real POS. You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: And in this tight circle, um, which very much does sound uh, in the detail you provide in the book, that unfortunately we can't necessarily get into. Uh, in the same amount of depth, obviously in the interview, uh, the tight circle is really quite clear, right? They're related to each other, they've known each other forever, and it's the same names kind of clearly keep coming up and have so much influence. And yet you also talk about how during this time, um, the adventurers are increasing ties with the Dutch and Dutch finances um, as kind of part of this process. So can you tell us about that angle?
2: It was more of a learning exercise than an increase in trade with the Dutch. Uh, they did have Dutch family ties and they were involved in the pure colonies. Uh, The early history of the New England colonies that they did, they actually left from the Netherlands or they were funded from the Netherlands. So the Calvinists in London and the Calvinists in the Netherlands have very, very close connections. The Dutch government were were very wary about taking sides during England's civil wars. And if anything, they supported the Stuarts over the upstarts and usurpers in Parliament. This is bad news for them as well if people get away with this sort of behaviour. The adventurers did raise some money in Ireland in the Netherlands in 1643, and unusually it was actually sent to Ireland in the term of refugee aid, as the Dutch government forbade the adventurers just simply spending the cash on weapons and shipping them to England. Uh, these, the connections that they had with the Dutch business and family brought them a familiarity with Dutch financial innovations. And the foremost of these was the Exchange Bank of Amsterdam and with the idea that lenders had to be confident that they would always get their money back. This, this is quite new in England. It was all very informal, but they seemed to have used their mutual familiarity as a group to keep the financial machinery of state humming along despite the outward appearance of a multitude of different tax and spend operations. So what they're doing is they're meeting quite frequently for, as Adventurers for Irish land at a meeting room in, in Grocers Hall, basically every week. And they're also meeting separately as providing money for the Navy and money for the Army and money for London and money for pensions and all these other different separate money, tax and spend schemes that Parliament had set up. But the fact that the same people are running all of them and these people are all meeting at the same time makes it very clear to London's merchant community that these guys aren't going to let one of these funds go bust, which is what normally happened, that they're going to make them all work as a whole. And what you basically have is an informal bank that basically exists, not in name, but it exists in effect. And their second big introduction from the Netherlands was the excise, which is basically VAT now in its modern form. Uh, This rose quickly, first in the Netherlands and then in England, to be the most important single source of taxation. It was easy to collect at a local level and it allowed currency to be recycled from the provinces back through the city and out again to the troops. Otherwise, once the Commonwealth's freshly minted coin went out to the provinces to pay the troops and had a tendency to stay there, they spent it in a local shop or a tavern or an inn or whatever they needed for their food, and the coin wouldn't come back. It would be circulated locally. So the excise helped to bring money back into London to be sent back out again and reduce the strain on the mint to keep bullion coming in for minting and made sure that the soldiers got paid much more reliably than would otherwise have been the case. So the excise adds not only more taxes, but it also adds liquidity to the financial system. Now this all sounds like it's all very pure and honest and they're doing their, their best here. But where the adventurers departed from the Dutch model was to provide the state with high interest loans that were secured on the excise. This made the tax considerably more expensive for the state and very profitable for the adventurers because there's no real hurry to collect the tax as long as the interest payments were met. So they made interest by financing the tax and collected fees as they brought it in. So this is really foxes and chickens, foxes guarding the hen house sort of behaviour. They, as long as it's... As, as long as the tax is difficult to collect, it's expensive to collect and the fees get large. As long as it takes a long time to collect the te- to collect the taxes, the amount loaned to the government stay outstanding, the interest payments mount up and up and up. So they made a huge amount of money being in charge of both sides. These days, the government collects the taxes and people loan it money. So the government has control over when people get paid back. Here, the people loaning the money had control over when they were going to get paid back by the government. And they really made an awful lot of money from doing this.
1: And had rather a lot of control of the entire process and therefore significant influence on politics and military as well. Um, And there wasn't a lot, as you mentioned before, that the uh, MPs could necessarily do about this. And yet relations between the adventurers and Cromwell particularly do eventually sour um, under the Republic and the Protectorate. So how exactly does that relationship sort of disintegrate?
2: Well, the first thing that we all should bear in mind is that Cromwell wasn't stupid. Cromwell could see what they were up to. But the and again, once the military campaigns had ended, Cromwell knew he needed them less. But ultimately, it's getting finally, after, what, over 10 years, this is finally getting back to the Irish land. The Cromwell's campaign of 1649 to 1650 had pretty much destroyed all Irish military occupation, military opposition to the English Commonwealth. The Irish were in the process of being expelled from their estates, and the military government in Dublin was drawing up redistribution plans, and this is where the Down survey mentioned at the beginning, this is when this was done. The adventurers wanted first choice to maximise their own profits, and so did the army. So the adventure suddenly becomes this really important source of free money for these people who'd be making money for so long. The adventurers were used to dealing with the long parliament, where they could simply buy off the MPs, but had far less control over the military government as Cromwell's government, the Council of State, that replaced it, especially as the English civil wars were effectively over. So they walked out on Cromwell, citing the dissolving of parliament, but what they really meant was the expulsion of their friends Who would pass favourable legislation that might even enhance their already lavish entitlements. Cromwell's priority was his unpaid soldiers in Ireland and ensuring their welfare and loyalty. So they got in between Cromwell and his loyalty to his army and he weren't really going to get away with that. So once this had happened, both sides basically soaked for a while but they needed each other too much for a complete break. So they continued to do business. Cromwell wanted ships for the Western design in 1655, for example, but the trust was gone. I mean, at some point there was a rumor that Morris Thompson's son was going to marry Oliver Cromwell's daughter who was floating around London for a while in, in the gossip newspapers. That they were actually all very, very close, but they weren't close anymore. And a new bunch of financial people was brought in by the protectorate to manage its, its affairs rather unsuccessfully. The adventurers returned to their own circles and they cultivated figures such as General George Monk to keep pressure on the authorities in Ireland to press their claims. Monk had been put in charge of Scotland. He was in charge of armies in Ireland. He he was a a well-known and powerful figure on the periphery of the British Isles of the stage. And then Cromwell died and suddenly they're back. So that is the, the death of Cromwell and the Ability of these people to stay alive for longer seems to have been what basically got them back and got them all back in business again.
1: And so, then, what role do the adventurers have in the restoration?
2: Well, this was by their. St- I mean, if you look at the complexity of how they managed to milk money out of the public purse during the so the years of the, years of the Commonwealth, the restoration was actually quite a simple transaction. Uh, Cromwell's parting gift was a naval war with Spain that England was losing quite badly. I think that we forget throughout this period when we're talking about the early English Empire, that Spain was the big Atlantic colonial power. The Dutch came and went, but the rise of England and France came a lot later. So picking a naval war with Spain was attacking the superpower, and this had predictable results. The adventurers wanted Charles II to end this war, and declared that they would receive their land allocations, as defined in the act that his father had signed in 1642. The adventurers, through the good offices of their new friend, George Monk, would deliver London, a big bag of money, and arrange and further whip around in London to get the party properly started once the king was restored to his capital. So the Brita Declaration of 1660 confirmed all of this to the adventurer's satisfaction, and after that, it was just really a matter of arranging knighthoods and pardons and where appropriate rounding up a few luminaries from the protectorate who had not had the wit to escape to the colonies and book the caterers. It was a final and complete disaster for Ireland's Catholic landowning elite, of course, many of whom had travelled with and supported both Charles' during their exile. But I suppose that's just life under colonial rule. So their involvement was basically just to facilitate their return, and they seem to have been very, very forward in this. They travelled to the Netherlands, they were knighted by Charles while he was still in Holland, Morris Thompson was pardoned when he was on his way back to to Dover on the boat, and it just seems to have been basically quite a simple financial transaction.
1: By then they were used to high politics and money um, in much more complex ways, really, than...
2: (laughs) Well, they knew what they could buy.
1: yeah exactly um, and this one was not about buying this here to equip that there to organise the logistics there this is quite simply we know who we need to go talk to let's go turn up and give him a whole bunch of money
2: yeah, and also he's the only, he was the only person who could have ended that war with Spain hmm. because most European states didn't recognise a lot of either Cromwell's protectorate or the various parliaments that followed it and it's one of these things I don't know who I'm dealing with so say if France had a deal with Oliver Cromwell. It didn't necessarily follow that the parliament that followed Oliver's death was going to stick to the deal or any other regime was going to stick to the deal. You really had to have a king back and that ex- expected continuity of rule before other kings were going to roll in and start doing peace deals with people.
1: Makes sense. Um, definitely makes sense from their perspective as a, a business venture, really. And so that takes us to the sort of end of the uh, time period covered. Um, the adventurers get a whole bunch of things that they want um, and are able to, you know, they don't get thrown in jail, they don't get murdered. Like, they, they continue to have lots of money and influence. Um, and you talked about how at the very beginning, this book kind of came out of records that were um, kind of finally gave clarity to this puzzle. Um Was there anything in the process of researching or writing this book that you came across that you found particularly surprising?
2: Well, the main surprise was what a modern story it turned out to be. I'd expected plenty of references to expanding a colony in Ireland and converting the Irish to the true religion and generally improving the locals to the point of becoming good citizens of the Commonwealth, or alternatively, plenty of references to simply killing them all and moving on. But what I found instead was a group of people with the same interests as modern corporations. They wanted free access to natural resources. They wanted protected markets. They wanted cheap finance. They wanted to write their own regulations, and they wanted to have the state pay for their security. And much of this in the British context was completely new. Charles I had devoted considerable energy in the 1630s to preserving and expanding a system of trade monopolies from which he intended to be the main beneficiary the adventurers in the 1650s wrote their own set of rules, the Navigation Act, and this became the basis of some reiterations of Britain's trade policy with the world for the next century. It only really benefited England's merchants who managed to protect their own market on the one hand and have the taxpayer-financed Royal Navy protected interests on the other. So it was the modernity of the whole thing that I found to be the most surprising.
1: It is quite interesting, um, I must say, reading it to see the kind of quotations in the vernacular used then to a degree um that you know look to a reader quite old-fashioned really and yet then looking at well what's the actual content of what they're saying not how are they saying it but what are they actually talking about um, and going oh that that sounds actually quite quite familiar there really um and so it was quite interesting uh, i don't think i was necessarily expecting it to sort of seem as modern as it did um, when picking it up. And I can only imagine how much more magnified um, that feeling would be to you actually going through um, all of the archives. Uh, So thank you for sharing that with us.
2: Absolute pleasure.
1: And as my final question, um, I always ask what authors are working on now or next, now that their book is published. Um, But you mentioned that a little bit at the beginning already. So I just wondered if you wanted to um, tell us a little bit about kind of your main uh, if, whether there's any particular project associated with the launching of this new uh, website or any place you'd like to particularly direct listeners to to kind of go check out um, or anything about your current work you'd like to share.
2: I'm working, I've am working. i been working at the Virtual Treasury of and since, basically since, since the start of the pandemic. And as a digital project, we should have been able to do our work properly and we did because it's supposed to be online, it's meant to be digital. Uh, My main role in that was actually working with machine transcription. So this this is a project that came out of the University of Innsbruck called Transcribus for the automatic transcription of early modern handwriting. And we've done a lot of work on this to the point at which we now have handwriting models that enable us to simply turn a camera phone picture of a 17th century manuscript page into a Microsoft Word file. And it'll do it in a couple of seconds and it'll do it really accurately. So this for us is a big game changer as historical researchers because my research not of many of my colleagues tends to be of the needle in a haystack variety. You're looking for a person to pop up on a document and because we can now essentially photograph and transcribe a a thousand pages a day this makes all of this work much more feasible to do so we can look at research questions you couldn't look at using traditional methods. So that's really my current thing.
1: A very uh, cool way... current thing. Sorry? A very cool current thing.
2: Yeah, and it's it's fun to be involved in at the tech end of things. There's, there's plenty going on. And similarly, it's good to be able to keep another the other foot firmly in the history department of Trinity with the early modern academics, because we can all see what's coming out of this now. There's lots of old projects that are, can be brought in together that we can make cross-searchable. There's lots of texts around the world that we have found for in the virtual record treasury that we didn't know existed before. So we can start now to look at completely new research topics that we weren't able to look at even two years ago.
1: Um, well, as a reminder to listeners, uh, I believe that the URL, this can be found at as virtualtreasury.ie. That's it. Wonderful. Um, well, listeners are encouraged to go check that amazing new resource out. Um, and as a reminder, the book we've been primarily talking about, if you want to check that out as well, is t- titled Empire and Enterprise, Money, Power and the Adventures for Irish Land During the British Civil Wars, published by Manchester University Press in 2022. Dr. David Brown, thank you so much for being on the podcast.